we have a ringside seat for the comeback of the martini. Everyone is talking about it. Everywhere you go, folks are sharing martini stories. They're sharing theories as to where the martini went for all these years, why it's coming back, what their martini methods include. And somebody that has been a warrior in the battle for martini supremacy has been Brian Van Flandern. He is America's top mixologist. He's a spirits historian and an award-winning cocktail book author, and he is kind enough to join us uh, this morning on the radio. Hello there, Brian. Top of the morning to you. (laughs) Uh, So, Brian, the number one question I got from folks when I um, when I would mention that I was going to have you on today is folks asking me what the difference is between a mixologist and a bartender. So I'll I'll ask you that question first. What is the difference between a mixologist and a bartender? Well, you know, for 20 years, I thought uh, a mixologist was a bartender with a self-inflated ego. <laughs> but uh, we've seen over really uh, since the late, late 90s, early 2000s, that the best mixologists or the best bartenders in the world are emulating the great chefs or if they're sourcing local ingredients, freshest ingredients possible. They're doing spirit education to find the highest quality spirits. They're using flavor profiling to balance the acids and sugars and create original cocktails and recreate the classics that taste spot on perfect every time. It's uh, an emerging culinary art form, and uh, the term mixologist has kind of fallen into favor and it's become the the so i always tell the average person the basic difference is a mixologist is to a bartender as a chef is to a cook i like it and we're in yeah yeah that's it i like it and if people want to check out your website by the way they can do so at mymixologist.com there's a, a ton of great stuff on there what makes you america's top mixologist has that been is that self-proclaimed or were you actually awarded that designation somewhere no, I was. Uh, I did a, a little stint uh, on the Food Network. I've done a, a lot of different projects with them, and uh, one of their one of their uh, uh, producers or whatever was put it, putting up the sign and said, "Hey, we've got America's top mixologist." But I, I was formerly ranked number two in the world. I, I used to compete internationally, so uh, I, I somebody. Somebody else gave me the title, and I, I use it in all my promotional material. So, <laughs> well, who was the person that finished number one in the world? Well, he was uh, an Australian who was living in New York, but he's uh, he since moved on, and I, I that was then, and, and there's been a lot of competition since then. So, so if we wanted to be technical, I guess we should properly refer to you as the world's second greatest mixologist. <laughs> well, now I can use that in my promotional material. Say Frank said I was number uh, <laughs> number two in the world. Um, all right. Well, so w- tell me about the story with the martini. I've seen now a whole bunch of articles all saying that the martini is in the midst of a comeback. Is this just media hype or is this real? Did the martini really see a wane in its popularity and is it now seeing a resurgence? What's your take? Yeah, well, first of all, for those of us in the know, it has been, it's been coming back strong for a while now. But uh, in very recent months, uh, in the last year or two, we're seeing a huge resurgence in the mainstream and the middle of America. People are really getting turned on to it. And there's, and there's a number of different factors uh, that have gone into resurging. Uh, one, of course, the show's 
television shows like Mad Men or, uh, you know, Casino Royale or even American Psych, people see people romanticizing the, the martini, and that's exciting. But we're also seeing this huge flood of, uh, of, of videos emerging on TikTok and on YouTube and other social media platforms, and we're seeing a lot of people, uh, of mixologists and bartenders, uh, making these cocktails, um, and they're making them properly. And, and one of the reasons that the martini declined for many years, ironically, is because of Ian Fleming and James Bond. Mm. And, and it, it's weird because it, he's often credited for popularizing the martini, and it's really quite the opposite. Uh, prior to 1960s, um, every bartender, actually, I should say prior to Prohibition in the 1920s, every bartender knew that you always stirred a Manhattan or a, a gin or vodka martini or Old Fashioned or Rob Roy. We knew those cocktails were always stirred because all the components were alcoholic and we wanted to um, prevent it from being aerated. We want to prevent putting bubbles in there and keep those oily, creamy textures intact that coat the back of our tongue. And then uh, Ian Fleming, not being a bartender, uh, had his suave debonair James Bond oil uh, order his cocktail shaken, not stirred. And we aerated it. We compromised the integrities of the oils. And bartenders, after Prohibition, weren't properly trained on stirring. So they said, oh, let's just shake it. And they would do it once or twice. And now you have these strong, rude things that were just so aggressive on the palate that nobody really enjoyed them. You know, that, just, that, they, that... they looked no, it's such a great point. I'm so glad you mentioned that because when I discovered a stirred martini versus a shaken martini, I basically said, where have you been all my life? And I couldn't understand why anybody would get the shaken martini. But then I would order the stirred martini, and I'm a pretty pretentious guy, but it felt a little pretentious even for me to say, Please give it to me stirred, not shaken. I think a lot of people like the look of that shape with shaved ice at the top, and they like mm-hmm. that it can get so cold so quickly. But to, in my view, there's no comparison. It should always be stirred. Well, there's two things. First of all, once we add a mixer or a non-alcoholic component like olive brine and you're making a dirty martini, you've, you've compromised the integrity of that spirit. And you might as well shake it down and get those ice mm. chips along the top. But mixologists hate those ice chips because if we, if we shake it down to the proper rate of dilution, those ice chips continue to melt in our cocktail and water it down. So a good bartender doesn't leave those ice chips on the cocktail. That first sip should be cold and inviting and perfectly balanced. Now, to your point, a good cocktail should be stirred. Uh, A good martini should always be stirred. And we want to take that alcohol from about 40% down to about 20 to 22%, just a little higher than a glass of wine. So you can taste your drinking alcohol, but it's not kicking your butt. It just tastes delicious. And if someone goes to a place where you're bartending or mixologizing and they order a martini and they don't specify vodka or gin or a specific type of vodka or gin and they don't specify up or on the rocks and they don't specify olives or a twist, they just said, hey, you know, I'll take a martini. What do you then do? What's your de facto go to methodology in making a martini? Well, first of all, the de facto, you, you, don't, you should never ask shaken or stirred. If the guest wants it shaken, they'll let you know. But the default should be stirred. Mm. Uh, 
now, an, uh, now the classic original martini was made from gin. In fact, it was 50% gin and 50% dry vermouth. And a lot of Americans turned off to that idea because, um, you know, vermouth is a, a fortified wine. And wine, once it's exposed to air, eventually becomes bitter and skunky. And we need to properly refrigerate and store our dry vermouth uh, in, in, a, in a refrigerated unit. So um, if you're going to do that, uh, if you get fresh vermouth, dry vermouth, a 50-50 is really quite a pleasant and, and delicious cocktail when properly stirred down. Do people still uh, serve it that way? Do you still serve it that way? Um, it's, it's resurging right now. People are getting back into the wow. 50-50. But wow. for the last 40 years, people have been ordering it dry, extra dry, extra, extra dry, which means you just look at the vermouth bottle really <laughs> right, hard. Right. Or you wave it over the glass. Uh, traditionally, people just put a splash in, rinse it in, and splash it out. And that's because we're using uh, dry vermouth that's been sitting in the rail for two weeks, mm. a month, three months. And, and the less we use, the longer it sits out, and the more skunky and bitter it gets. We need fresh dry vermouth. Okay, so um, stirred, uh, fresh dry vermouth instead of uh, vermouth that has been left out. Uh, you will, unless they specify dry, you'll give them a more generous serving of vermouth than what a lot of drinkers are are doing. And then I know you said the drink originated with gin. Does do you make that their de facto or do you then ask, do you want vodka or gin? Well, mo- a great question. And my de facto is I love converting people back to gin Me because too. a lot of yeah. people out there listening, I go have had a bad experience with gin. And say, Oh, I don't drink gin. People don't know that gin and vodka are the exact same thing. The only difference is that gin is fortified with these botanicals, which give it flavor, and it's distilled to a slightly higher percentage of alcohol. But if we stir that down to the proper uh, alcohol rate, no more or less than vodka, and now it, we shouldn't wince when we take that first sip. It tastes delicious, it's inviting, and it has lots of flavor to it. So uh, my default is gin. And then a lemon twist. Of course, if the guest wants olives, uh, I, I want to have the best possible olives. And, and if you can buy them in the stores, get these uh, bright green Castel Vetrano Italian olives. Those are the best. They just taste phenomenal in a martini. And, and, you know, the other thing, since you mentioned olives, that I've never understood is folks that – and I love cheese and I love gin and vodka, but I have never <laughs> understood why – Anybody in the world would ask for blue cheese stuffed olives in the drink. I mean, to me, it and I've tried it. It makes a drink taste greasy. I mean, to me, it's it's a waste of cheese and a waste of gin. Yeah, I um, well, here's the thing: uh, ethanol is a solvent, just like water is, and and your uh, gin is at higher proof. Cut and breaks down all the oils in the cheese, and they tend to have an oil slick floating on top of your your cocktail. I'm with you on that one. That started in Chicago. It became a thing. Um, here's my my feeling about it. If you want to do blue cheese stuffed olives, some people just love it. Get a really good high quality. Don't go, don't buy the store pot ones. They're just terrible. You can go on Amazon and buy a little cheese injector and get a good Stilton blue or a creamy blue cheese mm. injected into the olive. And go that route. It just it tastes better when you do it that way. But you're absolutely right. You're going to get that oil slick floating across the top. Yeah, and, 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 and we're talking with Brian Van Flandern. His uh, website, if you want to check him out or check out some of his books, is mymixologist.com. Uh, talking a little bit about the comeback of the martini. 
I remember about 15 years ago, people were talking about the comeback of whiskey and scotch and spirits, brown spirits. Was that a real thing? Because to me, it seemed very real. 20, 30, 25 years ago, I don't remember people ordering uh, a neat bourbon or uh, a single malt scotch neat. Now, especially even among young people, you go to a bar and you see brown spirit after brown spirit. What was that real, number one, and what caused that, number two? Well, it's definitely real, and the, and the proof is in the numbers. You can just see that bourbon and, uh, to a, a lesser degree, scotch whiskeys uh, have surged. The, num- the sales, the raw numbers across the board are just surging. Uh, it, a lot of that had to do with this uh, new golden age of the cocktail. Um, part of being a great mixologist, is doing spirits education and drilling down like a like a sommelier on the wines, really understanding the terroir, the distillation techniques, the aging practices, and what makes these spirits so special. Prior to you know the 90s and 80s and 70s, people just knew you know you get doers they, they had their favorites. I like brown, I like doers, I like whatever, and that's that's what they stuck with. They drank what they knew and they knew what they loved, and that was it. Now people want that bespoke experience. They want to discover that thing that nobody else knows about to share it with their friends. And it's an affordable luxury experience. Now, um, what, I was at a friend's the other day, and um, he poured me a glass of wine from a, a $12 bottle of wine, which I thought was delicious. And uh, he said, you know, you should do a segment on – the best cheap wine and or the best cheap liquor. And I said, well, I'm actually fortunate enough to have a real expert on this uh, on this front coming on with me. If you had to pick a, a liquor and or a wine that's not going to break your budget, but which is as good as any of these high-end brands, these name brands, these designer brands, what are a couple of uh, of inexpensive spirits or wines that you'd name? You know, I'm going to sh- show one out there. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Rocky, uh, his um, cousin or whatever it is, the, the, the drunken bum Paul, uncle. Paulie, right. Polly, Polly. I'm sorry. I've heard, all you New Yorkers, they're out there cringing. They say, what are you doing? You can't remember Polly's name. <laughs> oh, no, it's the well, Philadelphians that you have angry at you now, not the New Yorkers. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. So here's the deal. Uh, Paulie, in the middle of that movie, he pulls out a, a bottle of Four Roses and starts, starts swigging off of it in the meat locker back there. And uh, Four Roses had a great reputation uh, prior to Prohibition, but they sold it after Prohibition was over in the, in the 20s and 30s. And uh, it was became this rot gut swill. I mean, just horrible stuff they would sell to the bums under the bridges they'd fortify it it was like mad dog 2020 or wild irish rose or some of these other it's just terrible stuff and then sometime in the 60s i was brought by a japanese company who decided they wanted to make great american whiskey and they've been winning all kinds of awards for their single malt scotches and so they made a phenomenal bourbon but the damage had been done to the reputation, and so it's always been priced at a very reasonable price, but the quality of it is outstanding. There, there's there's a, uh, one example of a of a hmm. what's regarded as a, our parents thought that if you're drinking Four Roses, they would have said, poor Frank, what happened to him? Where, <laughs> where, where did he go wrong? But uh, my recommendation is uh, Four Roses is, is, is a great example of, a, of an inexpensive spirit that is phenomenally. Another one's Tito's. Everyone knows Tito's cheap. Vodka made from corn 
but it's distilled in a copper pot alambic still. And, um, you know, it, it's really high quality. It's really very tasty for those who like vodka uh, because the corn's naturally sweeter. And it's priced. It's, it's, it's inexpensive. It's good to go. Have all the good cocktails already been invented? Oh, by a, no, absolutely not. Here, here's, the, here's the beauty of it. When you understand flavor profiling, you know how to balance acids and sugars, there's a million acids out there, a million sugars. And then you've got a, a, every day there's new new spirits being distilled. Even in the category of whiskey, people are experimenting and doing all kinds of crazy new things. So there's literally an infinite number of combinations. And the next great, there will never be another cosmopolitan or margarita because there's so many new things coming out there that there will never be that superstar cocktail again. But you'll find instead those cocktails. That superstar cocktail is is specific to a specific venue. I see. So we a, won't see something take off like a Manhattan again. Like there's there's no drink name for Staten Island. We won't see a Staten Island become the the gold standard in bars all over the world. Not unless I create it and you promote it. If we, <laughs> if we, if we team up, we can make that happen. I'm game. I'm game. Hey, um, you know, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of um, you know uh, Irish taverns that I've frequented over the years. And, you know, you go in a lot of these places, you know that's probably not the best place to order a whiskey sour or uh, you have the highest expectations for a martini. How do you know, if you're a patron, what to order where? How do you know uh, to make sure you're not ordering um, a drink that's outside of the the purview of what an establishment can handle? Yeah, (laughs) you know. Every time I go into a bar with my wife, I, I take a look at the menu. I can tell, as a mixologist, I look at the menu and I can tell if a mixologist had a hand in it. If I, you know, if there's, if, if you look at a menu and you see an ingredient or three that you don't recognize, probably uh, that's a good place to order a cocktail. Really? Okay, that's good advice. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the list and, and you you recognize the name of every cocktail on the list, it's not particularly original. Chances are it's just going to be the same old, same old, and the bartenders probably haven't been trained. Probably there's always the exception to the rule. Uh, in those places, I just I, I usually just go for my gin and tonic or a, or a good Negroni. It's really hard to screw up a Negroni, although believe me. I've had plenty of bartenders try. <laughs> same, uh, same. Hey, uh, since you are, are in New York, if you had to pick your favorite high-end bar in New York, uh, which is, you know, a $15 cocktail or above, and if you had to pick your favorite dive bar in New York. Yeah, you know, um, so uh, high-end, uh, it's been around for a long time, but I'm, I'm really partial to either uh, PDT, which is Please Don't Tell. Oops. I did it. I told. Oh, well, anyway, the point is uh, that's down on 6th Street. Uh, sorry, on 8th Street, uh, St. Mark's Street between Avenue A and 1st Avenue. And it's a hidden speakeasy. There's actually uh, it's like a you go in there and it says Chris dogs on the outside. And you go in they, they, there's a bunch of video games and they sell deep fried hot dogs and beer. And you say, am I in the right place? And you notice on the left, there's a, a phone booth. You pick up the phone, you dial zero and somebody says, good evening. Can I help you? I say, yeah, I'm I'm looking for this place. What's your name? Uh, Brian Van Fleet. Party of four? Yeah. Are you all here? Yes, we're here. And the back of the phone booth opens up, and then you step into this uh, railroad apartment next door, and they've got this uh, small hidden away bar. It's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, that one's great. Death and Company, a couple blocks down, is great. 
And then the Dead Rabbit down on, in the Wall Street district, those three, well, uh, Dead Rabbit won Best Cocktail Lounge in the oh, world. Oh, sure. No, I've been, I've been there. I, I didn't realize they had reopened after COVID and everything. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, no, they have. In fact, uh, they're actually opening a new one, I believe, in New Orleans. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. It's, it's, and then real quick, can you, can you pick a dive bar that you really enjoy? If, if for charm, yeah. if nothing else? The ones I used to go to have all closed because they're divey. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in the Upper West, Side, uh, you get up there too far enough in the I think ninety six. There's a place called Dive Bar, <laughs> and uh, you know you, you, the cocktails are fine for what they are, but uh, you can get good greasy food after you get off late night and you're tired. You can I, get you just go to the dive. I bar. think a lot of our late night listeners will appreciate that. Brian Van Flandern, America's top mixologist, the world's second best mixologist, a uh, award winning cocktail book author. You can check out his books and a ton of other stuff at mymixologist.com. Brian, I actually have pages more of notes that I want to ask you about. Next time, I want to get you to come in studio so that we can have a drink together. Sounds like a plan. I'll make you one on the air. Uh, believe me, uh, I I, uh, I wouldn't let you out of here unless uh, unless you did that. So thank you. <laughs> My pleasure.